Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can click the like or subscribe button. You can also leave me a comment wherever you listen to this podcast. So I'm glad to be back and I have a great show for you all today. We have some real spicy stuff to get into. Some of it I've commented on Twitter but yeah it's a, it should be good. So I'm going to start off today by talking about some biotech news, some little updates that we got, some press releases. And then I'm going to follow up by talking about Gilead's uh, remdesivir data. We're going to touch a little bit on the New England Journal of Medicine study that they published, followed up by a report that was provided by our friends at Stat News. So that's going to be good. And then the final topic I want to talk about is Stemline. So, you know, one benefit of being in this volatile environment is that there are buying opportunities right now. And one that I do see is in a company called Stemline. So we're going to talk about them and why I think they're a buy right now. So with that, let's uh, get to some of the news that we saw this week. And first thing I wanted to touch on is Athersis, mostly because I just talked about them in the last video. But we saw actually in the last couple of weeks that the FDA has authorized Athersis to initiate a pivotal clinical trial evaluating multi-stem cell therapy in patients with COVID-19 with induced acute respiratory distress syndrome. So some of the stuff that I talked about in my previous video was that I wasn't sure if the phase two that they're currently undergoing with their collaborator in Japan was going to be a pivotal study. And it looks like it will be for the Japanese system. And then this study that they're launching or that they launched in the last couple of weeks is going to be the pivotal study for them domestically here in the United States. So the primary endpoint is ventilator free days through day 28 and they're beginning to open sites this quarter. So I'm not sure exactly what that means in terms of when we can expect data. I would think maybe late Q3, probably in Q4, we'd see some data for this, which could be a big boost for the company. Also what we learned, and at the risk of opening another can of, of drama with this company, they announced a public offering of 22 million shares at $2.25 for about $50 million in proceeds. I did say that I was expecting them to announce another offering. And that is what we saw. Uh, it was earlier than I expected. I really thought that they were going to wait until maybe later in the year to do this. But while the stock's doing okay, I guess it's a, it's an opportunity to do so. So with another $15 million in cash, this should give them another six months or so. And, you know, if they do see some good data from this pivotal study, it would likely boost the stock quite a bit more before they have to go ahead and, and raise money again. So that's Athersis. I'm still staying on the sidelines. I'm still not super confident in that uh, data we saw originally with their phase one. So I, I have no real sense on whether or not I think the data is going to be positive, but I hope it is so that this can get rolled out and it can actually start helping patients that have COVID-19 and ARDS. Going to move quickly to Immunomedics, which is a company that kind of fell off my radar. Ticker symbol is IMMU. They have a compound called Sazituzumab govidican, and yes, I did practice that so I could say it properly, for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And what I had kind of talked about is the potential for this drug. It's a, it's a unique formulation so that they can really target the cancer cells and hit them with this payload that is toxic to all cells, but because it's tethered to something that specifically targets cancer cells, it would primarily affect them and kill them. So the primary indication they were looking for is triple negative breast cancer, and they had done an ascent study to confirm their previous phase three results. And there was some concern with safety, but the ascent study was actually stopped for compelling efficacy. So that's great news for them. The PDUFA date is for June 2nd of this year, and we'll see if the FDA is gonna go ahead and approve the drug 
so that they can start treating metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients. They have a planned readout for urothelial cancer in the second half of 2020, and they're also still enrolling patients for hormone positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. So I think that that trial readout is going to be particularly important for the company, and I'm going to keep them on my radar and pay a little bit better attention because I think that if they do see positive data there, the company has a, a much larger patient population to go after. So um, yeah, so it's good for them, and hopefully they'll see a positive result at the PDUFA date, and I'm going to keep an eye out for that trial. Moving on, I want to talk a little bit about Ameren because they had their earnings report a little while ago, and what we learned is that their Q1 2020 revenue beat estimates at $150 million, and I had said previously that I thought that their estimates were sandbagged in anticipation of better results, and that is what happened, but unfortunately none of this matters because they do not have patent protection in the United States, given the ruling that we heard a little while ago. So regarding to the appeal and the generics, the CEO is not expecting at-risk launches, but they are willing to file an injunction. I've talked about that in the past. This is not new news. But they did also say that in the event of an appeal loss, Ameren would be willing to launch a branded and generic version. So this is an interesting strategy in order to allow them to maintain market share in this space. Because if they launch a generic version immediately, you know, by the time another generic comes to the stage, Ameren's already going to have a generic that kind of solidifies their position in the market. So there's not going to be really an advantage to patients taking a, another third-party generic other than Ameren's. Now, the only issue with this is that the generic price is going to have to be competitive with the other companies that launch generics as well. So in this way, they're going to lower the amount of total revenue they get. But... There is a lot of uncertainty in the company. I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with my shares. The stock has bounced back a little bit, but you know, if they don't win an appeal, I assume they're going to see further downside until we actually start to see the kinds of numbers that start coming in, given the new pricing of a generic version of Ameren. So we'll see. I'll keep you all posted on what I do. I'm tempted to buy a little bit more and lower my cost basis, but I'm, uh, I don't feel great about that either. So we'll see. All right, let's talk about Gilead, everybody. So first thing I want to touch on with Gilead is this New England Journal of Medicine study that they released regarding the compassionate use of remdesivir for patients with severe COVID-19. So Gilead's been at the forefront of the media when it comes to this remdesivir drug that they're hoping to get approved. And they initially had remdesivir offered only as compassionate use for patients as it's still undergoing phase three trials right now. So some people who are really severe, severely affected by COVID-19 could apply to, to take remdesivir. And what Gilead did is they published a study with 53 patients who had taken it under this program. And really, it wasn't a placebo-controlled trial, so for me, there's no real conclusion to be drawn. They said that a majority of patients were discharged, but because there's nothing to compare it to, it doesn't really mean much. Um, another thing that's worth complaining about for this study is that they didn't even measure viral load. So we don't even know if patients that were taking remdesivir had lowered viral loads. And, you know, we could figure that out by comparing baseline to treated data. But they didn't do that. So it's kind of left us in the dark here. The company itself has terminated a study in China with severe patients because of low enrollment. And they're awaiting the publication of these data to announce an in-depth re review of the results. So... That's one thing that we can also look forward to see is the data that we're getting from this low enrollment patient population in China. And they are doing a mild to moderate disease study in China. So that's still ongoing. 
Some of the takes I've been seeing on Twitter are pretty disappointing. A lot of people complaining that the New England Journal of Medicine shouldn't have published the study given that it was, you know, there's a conflict of interest and there's no placebo. And if you're not new to academia, you know, it's a cartel. The big name journals really only publish stuff that's like really hot off the press type thing. So, of course, there's huge problems with this study. And Gilead's not even shy to mention them in the discussion. So... They, they clearly outline the limitations of the study, and everybody that I've seen on Twitter isn't really taking that into consideration. They think Gilead's just willfully blind to the fact that there's no control. Obviously, they know that, and if you want to throw the New England Journal of Medicine under the bus for publishing this, sure, but throw the entire institution of peer review under the bus. It's a horribly flawed system. As somebody who's coming from academia, I've seen this all the time. You know, these journals are a cartel that gatekeep science so that unless you know people or your science is so particularly compelling that they'd be willing to publish it. But if you want to talk about the academic system and publishing, let's have that conversation. But to call out this study in particular as being the true culprit and the true problem in the world of publishing, this is not the one for you. So that's my beef with the takes I've been seeing on Twitter. In terms of the upcoming data we can expect, the simple studies, we have an expected release date of May. There's also an NIH study going on, and this one is also placebo-controlled. So we can expect to see that data, which should be interesting, in May. And then there's other clinical trials going on as well. So we can look forward to that, which is actually going to provide us some compelling data. So given that, I did want to touch on a piece that we saw from Stat News by this ridiculous duo, Adam Feuerstein and Matthew Herper. And the title of the piece is called Early Peak at Data on Gilead Coronavirus Drugs Suggests Patients Are Responding to Treatment. And how they laid out this entire thing is that they obtained a video of Dr. Kathleen Mullane, who is the University of Chicago Infectious Disease Specialist overseeing the remdesivir studies at this hospital. So remdesivir is being studied at multiple clinical sites across the, across the world and Kathleen Mullane is overseeing one of them at the University of Chicago. And for some reason, Stat News came to obtain this copy of a video of her discussing the trial results. So they're not even seeing the results. They're seeing a video of her talking about some of the results. And they quote that Kathleen says, most of our patients are severe, most of them are leaving at six days. So that tells us duration of therapy doesn't have to be 10 days. We have very few that went out to 10 days, maybe three. She's also said that most of our patients have been discharged and we've only had two patients perished. These are quotes from the Stat News article of them saying that Kathleen is saying this in the video. So the facts of this clinical site are that the site has recruited 125 patients with 113 of them being severe disease. And what this article goes on to say is that because they've seen so many people discharged and that the length of treatment doesn't have to be very long, this suggests that patients are responding to treatment. Now, to put this in context, Adam Feuerstein and Matthew Herper have no problem taking your favorite company and completely destroying the press release that it has if it has good data. But then they feel that it's appropriate for them to publish this piece on completely anecdotal evidence from one clinical site of only 125 patients of this remdesivir study. It is completely ridiculous that they did this. And now, they're very clear in the paper to just present the facts as they see them and not actually provide any color. 
but they should know more than anybody that the public is going to completely eat this up and think that remdesivir has efficacy. Nobody's even done any statistical analysis on this. The the study itself isn't placebo controlled, so there's no way to even tell what a metric of success looks like. So they went ahead and published this knowing that people are gonna eat it up and think that remdesivir has efficacy when the patient population is 125 patients and originally they were looking to recruit 2,400 for this study. That's since been updated to 6,000 patients, but they should know better than anybody that looking at only 125 patients in one site of 152 clinical sites is not a valid way to look at data. Is it any wonder that Kathleen Mullane wasn't willing to comment further on this data? You know, they said in the article that she confirmed the authenticity of the tape, but she wasn't willing to comment further. And, you know, are you surprised why? It's because just taking a snippet of the patient population isn't a valid way to consider data. Nobody's even looked at the data to see whether or not there's any kind of efficacy, even though it's not a placebo-controlled trial. The company itself had to issue a statement saying that anecdotal evidence is not a valid way to look at the data. It's not a valid way to draw conclusions. And Feuerstein and Harper know this. They know it, but they published it anyway. And, you know, the, the worst part about it is that they they frame this as, oh, I'm just presenting the facts. Here's what we see from the video. And, you know, make of it what you will. But, you know, they put these sob stories of patients that were treated with remdesivir. And they, they say things like, oh, remdesivir was a miracle drug. They actually said this and they published it. And, you know, they should expect to see that this is going to skew the public opinion and make them expect that remdesivir is going to have efficacy. I just think this is pretty irresponsible journalism. You know, we have no idea the baseline statistics of these patients. We don't know what kind of side effects they had. We don't know if any of them were intubated or were on ventilators. But they're presenting this as some kind of evidence that there is uh, efficacy behind remdesivir. So that's Gilead. I do hope that there is efficacy, and I'm personally going to wait until the trial data is released. The company's market cap increased by like $15 billion after this piece was published. The company themselves, I don't think, are actually planning to charge people for remdesivir. They haven't priced the drug, and so to, for people to expect that this is going to materially increase the value of Gilead, I just don't see it. It's not going to lead to an increase in revenue for them. So I don't see why this would lead to any material increase in the company's value. So I do see that people are going to get burned by this if they're buying up here at $83 a share. So that's Gilead. I hope that Remdesivir is a success uh, because it would be a great tool to combat the viral pandemic that's going on right now. But I'll leave it at that. And since we're talking about COVID-19, I just want to comment that the cases are still increasing, but obviously it's slowing down. The rate at which it's increasing is slowing down. So I kind of look at it as we're kind of in a topping process right now. The federal government is already talking about allowing a phased opening of the country, and we're still yet to see how that's going to look at the state level. Uh, it looks like it is going to be staggered state by state on how they're going to open up, and this is going to have an impact on any kind of resurgence that happens with the virus. So for me, the way I look at this is that we're almost certain to have flare-ups in certain regions and or a second wave of infections. And we saw this in the Spanish flu, a big second and third wave of infections. So the country's going to have to be anticipating that. And I do kind of like how the federal government is, is rolling out this phased approach. 
um, because at each stage they have to be able to handle a potential flare-up in their region. So that should hopefully curb the number of serious cases that occur from the virus. And we're really hoping that a vaccine can come on the stage and then kind of put everything at ease. Because until then, or until herd immunity, we're, we're going to be living in this new normal where we're very cautious about waves of infections that come through and force us to go back into working from home. But that's COVID-19. We got to keep an eye out on that to see how it shakes out. And let's get to our final story for today. And that is a company called Stemline. And I need to give a shout out to Nathan Weinstein at Aegis Capital. He was the only guest on Breaking Biotech. And uh, he's the one that kind of tipped me off to Stemline a while ago. And I didn't really have a chance to look at them then. But after I took kind of a deeper look in the last couple weeks, uh, I kind of like them. So I'm going to present some stuff and uh, let you good people know what I think. And maybe we'll have them on and we can talk about this company a little further. But basically, the company closed at $4.98 a share on Friday, giving them a market cap of $250 million, And their net current assets are $162 million. So we see here from the outset, the company's trading at about a 30% premium around that um, to their net current assets. And their main drug that they have is a conjugate drug called Elzonris. And it's a fusion protein between interleukin-3 which is a ligand to the receptor CD123 or the interleukin-3 receptor, and it's tethered to the diphtheria toxin. So this drug is actually quite similar to immunometics drug in that it's a conjugate like this where it has a payload that is specifically delivered to what its fusion protein targets. And in this case, it's CD123. So you can imagine that any disease that happens to overexpress CD123 is going to be a good target for Elzonris, and this is kind of where the company's going. Now, the approved indication is for blastic plasma cytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, or BPDCN, and this disease is characterized by high expression of CD123, and it's not a very common hematologic malignancy. It makes up only half a percent of all of them. And this gives a, an approximate patient population of 534 patients in the USA as of 2018. Since the drug was approved in 2019, they have generated $43 million in revenue for Elzonris, and this is specifically for the BPDCN indication. They had a net loss of $76 million in 2019, and this is actually a reduction in net loss from the previous years. The drug is currently being reviewed by the MAA in the EU, and they're looking for approval, and that decision should come out in Q3 of 2020. So if that's approved, they should see growth in Europe for this, the adoption of this compound for this disease. And they're also developing it for a bunch of different malignancies. So like I mentioned, these dendritic cell malignancies that happen to have high expression of CD123 are potentially a very good target for Elzonris. So some of these diseases include chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, myelofibrosis, as well as a subset of patients with acute myeloid leukemia or AML. So they're looking to develop it in these diseases, and they also have a bunch of other assets that I think they own the rights to, but development has been relatively slow. One that they have been developing is SL801, and this is a reversible XPO1 inhibitor, and this is also overexpressed in various cancers. So they're undergoing a dose escalation study for that, but this is kind of a minor part of the portfolio. I think that the bulk of the value here is in Elzonris and the ability for the company to increase the indications and further develop it in, in this way. So 
The two that they're kind of focusing on is CMML as well as MF. What they've presented so far is that in patients that have uh, splenomegaly, which is a character of these diseases, the, the spleen actually gets very, very large in these patients. And what they've shown is that treatment with Elzonris has led to a reduction in the size of the splenomegaly, and this correlates well with the better prognosis. So they're seeing a beneficial effect of the drug in these patients. In CMML in particular, they've seen that there are three bone marrow complete responses, which is very good in a small study of, say, 23 patients. And now there are treatment-related adverse events associated with the drug. In particular, the thrombocytopenia as well as nausea can be pretty bad in these patients. And then the, the big one that we need to worry about is capillary leak syndrome. This is a brutal side effect that is uh, it's characterized by fluid and protein leaking out of your capillaries into like neighboring tissues. So if this isn't treated, it can be pretty uh, devastating to the patient, and it could actually be deadly if it goes on too long. But they saw three cases of this in the CMML patients. So we need to make sure that the dosing is not really going much higher than this, and I think they're stopping at the high dose that they gave in this stage two. So where the company's at with these two trials is they're about to do another trial in both of them, and this should hopefully provide enough data to the FDA to allow them to do a registrational trial, meaning that the trial after the one that's about to be released is going to be the one where they agree with the FDA on the endpoints, and this will allow the company to file an NDA after those results come out and if they're in favor of uh, Elzonris being treated. So to provide kind of an outline of the milestones that the company is looking at, um, Elzonris continues to be approved and they're, they've launched this in the U.S. It's continuing to get adopted by patients and they are waiting for approval in the EU. So the way I look at it is if they're able to get approval in the EU and say double the patient population they can go after, as well as potentially get good data in CMML and MF, this is going to provide enough revenue to provide a price target of around 15 bucks. So that's kind of where I see them, 15 to $17 if the CMML and the MF data continue to be positive and they see a launch of this compound for CMML in say 2022. We're expected to see data on these two by the end of the year. They say Q4 2020, and they're also expecting some data in an AML subset of patients as well as in solid tumors for the SL801 compound. So I'm not even focused too much on that. I think that good data would be beneficial, but they're going to have to do a lot more studies before that actually becomes a reality for the company. But the CMML and the MF, I think if they do see positive data, those are kind of a near-term launch. And that would lead to a big flux of revenue for the company. So like I mentioned, I have it written down here. I, I like where they're at right now, and I give them kind of a 15 to $17 price target. And the reason for this is that Elzonris actually garners a, a price of around $300,000 per patient. So you can estimate the number of patients that might be taking the drug if it were to be launched, and its adoption is kind of modestly increased year after year. Also, like I mentioned, it's encouraging to see the efficacy in these early trials of the CMML and MF, but we do need to be careful with the treatment-related adverse events. I think as the data stands now, it's not too bad, but if they see a substantial increase in patients that have capillary leak syndrome, it's not going to be a positive thing for the stock. So that's something I'm going to be watching out for is the side effects, but we also need to see the guidance from the FDA. 
So once the data starts to come out, they need to meet with the FDA and get guidance on what kind of endpoints they can expect to set up for that real pivotal study so they can get approval. Now, personally, I announced on Twitter that I bought 125 shares at $5.31, and I'm planning to hold until at least the end of the year. I think if we see some good data in some of the trials that I just mentioned, we could see a big bump in the stock. I'll reevaluate the position at that time. So that's Stemline. Uh, definitely like them. And for the next couple of weeks, we're in earnings season for the whole market. So definitely going to keep an eye on that. I think the market is expecting a very, very disappointing earnings season, but we are still shooting back up to, uh, to very high numbers on the SPX and a lot of other indices. So I'm a little concerned about going up too fast right now, but we'll see how it all shakes out. We should be expecting more Gilead readouts as May rolls around, so I'm going to be keeping my eye out on that. And then, yeah, we also need to be very careful on the COVID-19 situation. So looking for states to open judiciously, make sure that they're being very cautious in rolling it out, and any big spikes in cases could lead to, to another shutdown. So that's going to be something to, to watch for as we continue through this pandemic. And we're also starting to see estimates of a tangible economic impact, so as states start to reopen and things get back to normal, we're, uh, we're going to be seeing like how the virus has actually affected businesses. And we're going to see a glimpse of that in the earnings season. But remember, the earnings season is just going to be Q1 of 2020. And the real impact is going to be in Q2 as uh, this moves forward. So I'm going to leave it at that and do a quick little portfolio wrap up. Um, not a bad week. The whole XBI did pretty well. I'm sitting at negative uh, 22 for the year. 22% that is, and that is mostly because of Ameren. Everything else has bounced back pretty decently, and I've been doing actually pretty well in certain positions. So I bought Exact Sciences, and I kind of wish I bought more. They're up 23% on the position. I also added to Axom, and they're doing quite well too. I'm up around 5% on, uh, on that position too. And then, like I said, I took a position in Stemline at 531, and I'm down around uh, 6%, but I'm kind of scaling a new position, so I might add more at, uh, at that level. So compared to all the indices, I'm not doing very well. I'm uh, lagging the Dow Jones by a bit, but hopefully I can turn this around and, uh, and catch up to at least the, the XBI, but we'll, uh, we'll see. Volatility on the whole has been decreasing quite a bit, so... As this volatility goes kind of back down, we're seeing big increases in all the other indices. And, you know, it's anybody's guess if it's going to come back. But I know a lot of smart people that I've been listening to are anticipating that the date at which all the states kind of open up again is going to be the date at which we can start adding shorts again. Because as states open up, the likelihood of another breakout is quite high. And, you know, all it took was a handful of patients to fly in from China to spread this disease around and what this means is that if there's anybody running around with the with the virus all it takes is for us to lessen our social distancing and it should spread again so i'm going to be cautiously watching the fluctuation in daily cases and uh, and keep an eye out for that because yeah another shutdown could be devastating to the economy as this one has already turned out to be so we're going to leave it at that, but thanks everybody for watching. I appreciate all the support. Definitely click the like or subscribe button and uh, tell a friend if they're interested in the biotech space to uh, check me out. And with that, I'll wrap it up, but thanks again, and we'll see you next time.